Let's take a closer look now at that high-level diplomatic visit to Moscow today by the Secretary General of the United Nations. Antonio Guterres met with both Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and President Vladimir Putin. He there to appeal directly to Russian officials to halt the invasion of Ukraine. It is my deep conviction that the sooner we end this war, the better for the people of Ukraine, for the people of the Russian Federation and those far beyond. Guterres is scheduled to visit Ukrainian capital Kyiv later this week and meet with President Zelensky. So what chance, if any, is there for any kind of breakthrough? Joining me now is Peggy Mason, the president of the Rideau Institute, a nonprofit independent research and advocacy group based in Ottawa that focuses on foreign policy and defense policy issues. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. You've been watching, uh, you've certainly been watching attentively to see if if there's any progress in what could be called uh, peace negotiations to try to end this conflict in Ukraine, uh, to end the war in Ukraine. Uh, The UN Secretary General was in Russia today. Is is that a cause for optimism? You've been calling for, at least you've been talking about a greater role for the UN Secretary General in this uh, this conflict. I guess I'd have to say it's it is, it is reason for very, very cautious optimism. Um, I, I, I welcome the UN Secretary General getting involved. Uh, in the end, there is no way out but a negotiated solution. And, and you know, the sooner that can be, you know, there, a real negotiation can take place. I mean, actually, a lot of stuff has taken place, but that, that we can move that forward, you know, the, the sooner we can end uh, the carnage. But um, and interestingly, uh, in the meeting today between the UN Secretary General and uh, President Putin, I mean, we, the last thing we had heard about the peace negotiation was President Putin saying uh, it's a dead end. Um, although, actually, if you looked at the full content of what he said, he basically the dead end was that um, what he thought or what he said he thought was previously agreed had been rejected. So that approach was a dead end. But anyway, in contrast to what appeared to be closing down of negotiations, uh, President Putin is reputed today to have said he hoped there could be a negotiated settlement. So, and 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 so, and President Zelensky, of course, has never foreclosed the possibility of of a negotiated settlement. And in fact, there have been several rounds of negotiations. But the reason why I say very limited cautious optimism. I mean, optimism in the sense that the UN Secretary General can bring, you know, tremendous skill and 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 uh, support, uh, facilitation to a negotiation. Um, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the leverage, uh, real leverage here. The leverage here, uh, and this has been a feature of the negotiation from the beginning. The leverage here is that Zelensky. Uh, President Zelensky needs security guarantees. Coming out out at the other end of this, if he is going to agree, if there's going to be an agreement where, um, I mean, the main feature that appears will have to be there is a, a treaty of neutrality for Ukraine and they get into the EU and Russia specifically agrees to that, that they're not going to, it's impossible. President Zelensky could never sell to the public uh, a, 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 a treaty of neutrality unless he had some kind of solid security guarantees. And the West, I mean, the United States, NATO, they're key to that. And they have given no indication, quite the opposite. 
I mean, the United States hasn't been involved in the negotiation, even though the issue of security guarantees has been discussed from the very beginning. As soon as Zelensky realized that they were not going to get into NATO, I mean, that's what's propelling Zelensky to negotiate is because he realized very early on in the conflict when he realized that NATO wasn't going to engage in any way other than supplying weapons, um, that, you know, he made his statement. We, we thought the door was open to us, but we... We see we will never enter there. These are truths that must be accepted. But he cannot go into a, a neutrality treaty without security guarantees. And, and the West just doesn't, you know, they prefer to fight, frankly, Russia down to the last Ukrainian. You've been around a lot of these negotiations over the years. Uh, I, I think we understand looking at it geopolitically how difficult the maneuvering has been. I mean, this is clearly an illegal invasion. Um, clearly, the taking of more Ukrainian territory is not anything anybody wants to see. Zelensky can't negotiate uh, with his hands tied behind his back if there is more territory being taken uh, by Russia. So when you look at the broader picture here, where do you think there could be a breakthrough um, in these negotiations? Because it feels like no one's on the right page just yet. Well, Actually, I mean, the, the reporting of the negotiations and, and actually there was the Financial Times that seemed to have the greatest in and was reporting the various elements of it really laid out early on a package, the, the problematic part of which was the security guarantees mm-hmm. on the hard ones. I mean, the ones where where no one can agree in the middle of a conflict uh, an invasion can agree to allow the invader to win are the Donbass and Crimea issues. I mean, but in both cases, the the formula that they essentially agreed to, which I think is probably the only formula that would work, was to defer those issues. So in other words, there would be a treaty of neutrality, which would be guaranteed. There would be the, the, the EU, the Russian explicit agreement to Ukraine going into the EU. And that may not sound like anything, but that means that any steps they might take of any kind to undermine the application, you know, the steps, all the steps that Ukraine has to go through, those would be seen as breaching the agreement. And of course, there would be I mean, the other aspect of this agreement that requires Western agreement, and there's no indication of it, is there have to be some system of sanctions being lifted and sanctions being reimposed. But the but those other two parts, the Donbass, the Donbass and Crimea, I mean, there's been discussion about Crimea. In, in a sense, it's easier because a, a fairly administered international referendum would, it, it would go to Russia. They'd win it. But again, that can't be done now. None of it, that can't be done in the context of invasion. So the idea, and, and the same as Donbass, ever they work out. I mean, the Minsk agreements had a formula which wasn't loss of any territory for Ukraine, but it was like a federal status and they would have a local autonomy. But all of that, the, the, the outline of a deal that could potentially work and potentially be saleable and not so offensive to international law would be that those two issues, the Donbass and Crimea, would specifically be dealt with after. And I think there was even a time frame, like 10 years, they would be negotiating and discussing and whatever. But that would be against the backdrop of this very solid 
um, of, of removing from Russia's perspective, the concern, the, the ongoing concern that Ukraine was going to be this, you know, this launch pad for missiles into, into Russia. And uh, so, so that is, you know, that none, that's not, that's not easy, but that's doable. And that was outlined, you know, early on, but it depends on these, on these, on these, uh, these guarantees. It depends on, on the West step. Well, it depends on the West supporting the negotiation period. And that's just not clear. And it depends on them providing meaningful guarantees, which, um, which don't necessarily have to go to the point of we will, you know, like an article five NATO guarantee. I mean, that's hard to imagine. They're not, if they're not going to let them into NATO, they're not going to give them an article five guarantee, but, you know, a pledge by all by key countries uh, to stand behind the kind of sanctions that that have been put in place. I mean, that you know, Russia knows, and and that's one of the interesting things here is that um, Putin had all these years and his understanding of how they work in the economy. To to, to he thought he was sanction proofing Russia. Well, he found out very quickly that that was not the case and they and he can put a brave face and uh, on the impact but the impact is devastating one commentary uh was 30 years of development 30 years of of russian economic development overnight gone so um so the sanctions are are are, are tremendously powerful of course they're also wreaking havoc globally so you know, we need those sanctions. We need a way to get those sanctions off before, uh, I mean, the food prices alone and uh, instability in the Middle East as a result of that and North Africa, you know, yeah, these the, are, the, the knock on effect dramatic. Yeah. I'm speaking and not Peggy- to mention the people dying in Ukraine every day. Exactly. I'm speaking with Peggy Mason, president of the Rideau Institute. Uh, we're talking about uh, negotiations today, at least the beginnings, uh, a trip by the uh, UN Secretary General to Russia to meet with uh, to Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Uh, he's also to meet with uh, with Ukraine's President Zelensky. When we come back, we're going to take a step back in time a little bit to uh, to a country, uh, to, a, to a contentious, uh, or at least it's become a contentious agreement, the 1994 Budapest Budapest memorandum in which Ukraine uh, returned nuclear weapons on its territory to Russia in return for uh, what were guarantees. Just how far do those guarantees go? And uh, Peggy has a really good good insight into all that unfolded back in 1994. And we'll get to that after this. I'm back with Peggy Mason, president of the Rideau Institute, a nonprofit independent research and advocacy group based in Ottawa, focusing on foreign policy and defense policy issues. We've been talking about the hope for a negotiated end to the war in Ukraine. Now, there was some slight glimmer of hope today with a uh, trip to Moscow by the UN Secretary General. We'll see what happens uh, with that going forward. Uh, I want to take a, back, a, a step back in time because this is something that you know a lot about. And this is the very much talked about these days, 1994 Budapest Memorandum, essentially at the end of the Cold War, uh, a fair amount of nuclear weapons that were Russia's ended up on Ukrainian territory and there was a negotiation to get them returned uh, in return for uh, for some guarantees. And those guarantees guarantees, or at least the scope of those guarantees, have been talked about a lot, uh, specifically since 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and uh, the invasion to some extent of Donbass, and now again with the invasion uh, in 2022. What was the motivation at that point behind getting these weapons returned to Russia, and what exactly does that agreement say about Ukraine's territorial integrity? 
Well, uh, yes, I was. Thank you very much for that question. I, I mean, I, I was involved as a, a as a UN ambassador. I was part of a delegation um, that went to Kiev uh, to essentially deliver the message that um, you know it was the consensus of the international community uh, at the end of the Cold War when we had the Soviet Union and United States starting to drastically reduce uh, nuclear weapons, um, that um, the international consensus was that there should be no new nuclear weapon states. And in fact, the UN Security Council had met for the first time, January 1992, at um, summit level to make that declaration, to make the declaration that the, the, the horizontal spread, the spread of um, nuclear weapons to any new country would be seen as a standing threat to international peace and security. So essentially the UN, a number of UN ambassadors went to deliver the message that it was the, that, 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 that Ukraine by contemplating the idea that it would not return the weapons uh, on its, the, the, the Soviet then Russian, Russia as the successor state to the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons, it would put itself in a pariah category like North Korea. And therefore it just, so that's the context that the international community saw this as utterly and completely unacceptable. But there were practical matters too. I mean, you use the terminology returned, but of course, if you look at Wikipedia or if you listen to general commentary, they will say gave up its nuclear weapons. But you know, though those were Soviet nuclear weapons stationed on Ukrainian soil, Russia had the nuclear codes. Ukraine could not use, could not access the weapons, could not even keep them safe, couldn't maintain them. So they weren't, but the, the folklore is that Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in, in return for guarantees about its uh, territorial integrity, which proved uh, empty. And, uh, and, and had it kept them, things would be different. But so that they were returning weapons, they weren't giving up their own, they couldn't access them, they couldn't use them, and, or they couldn't access, I mean, they couldn't access the codes. Um, and, and it was in circumstances where the international community, where they would be standing against the international community if they tried to keep them. They would literally become a pariah, which meant sanctions on them. I mean, it was, so it, it just wasn't, it wasn't uh, within the realm of possibility that they could keep these weapons. And, and so the Budapest Memorandum was actually, yes, it has the fine words about territorial integrity, but the actual security guarantees were, um, were, were essentially the kind of guarantee that, that um, all the nuclear weapon states give to non-nuclear weapon states in the context of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is non, you know, uh, they won't attack, they won't attack you with, uh, with nuclear weapons. And so, yes, it looks like, uh, so the, the, the guarantees were, you know, it's hard. It, they were pro forma in a sense, really. And, uh, and they certainly were not, uh, but, but, they, but, it, but at the same time, you have to remember the context. It was a tremendously encouraging cooperative context. So no one was contemplating the possibility that there would be a country in Europe that would be invading another country in Europe at the, you know, I mean, a number that a nuclear weapon state in Europe would be doing this. So, 
So they were made into more than they actually were is, is, uh, um, is what the, the story comes down to. And of course, the folklore always has been that if Ukraine at the time, the third largest uh, nuclear power in the world, ever so briefly behind uh, Russia and the US, uh, that if it held on to these weapons, that again, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing today. But you're, you're saying that even within the context of, of, they weren't even a deterrent because they couldn't even use the ones yes, they had they in couldn't, their they couldn't use them. That's right. So, so, so that's the problem. The problem is that they, it wouldn't be different if they couldn't have kept them, but if they had kept them, they wouldn't be a deterrent. That's right. Uh, it would just be terribly, terribly destabilizing to have these all of these weapons and and uh, and Russia wanting them back. Um, I mean, it would have been a terribly hostile environment that um, that went contrary to everything that was going on at the time. And you're right; it would have been very hard to look forward um, to more than almost 30 years and see what's unfolding now happening uh, back then. Uh, Peggy Mason, thank you so much for your time tonight. It was my great pleasure.